Thank goodness you're all right. Is everything okay? Honey, I shrunk the audience. Journey with us now to the dawn of recorded time as we explore the amazing story of human communication. my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 522, and I'm here once again, not only to help you have the best possible vacation experience when you come to the Disney parks, but I also want to bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are as we explore all of the Disney World, not just with the podcast, but with my videos, live broadcasts on Facebook every Wednesday night books, audio tours, and most importantly, the community that I invite and welcome you to be a part of by going to www.radio.com community. So this week, we will explore Walt Disney World from the outside in as we discuss our top 10 buildings in Walt Disney World. From the parks to the resorts, we're going to look beyond the structures and stories, but also at their architectural significance, accuracy, design, and function. We'll examine the different types of entertainment architecture, the engineering marvels, as well as why they resonate with us on a personal, subjective level. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show. I'll have more information about upcoming special events, meet to the month, your voicemails, and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. I've often spoken about Walt Disney World in terms of the many layers of the onion, or cake, depending on your preference, and just how deep the storytelling, details, history, and engineering goes into every project. And hopefully, in time, you'll start to not only notice these elements when you visit the parks and resorts and cruise line, etc., but also start to seek them out on your own. Because sometimes those details and stories and significance is sort of hiding in plain sight as we don't see or take specific notice of some of the large examples that are just staring us right in the face. We're sometimes so focused on the minutia, or me, the food, that we fail to recognize some of the simplest marvels we pass on every visit. So this week, I want you to step back with me as we take a bit of a wider view as we explore and discuss our top 10 buildings in Walt Disney World. And before we get into exactly what that means, I want to welcome two gentlemen, and I use that term loosely, to help navigate this topic. And back once again is Daniel Roberts, who's not just a friend of the show, but continues to be incredibly generous in his support of our Dream Team project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Daniel, welcome back, my friend. 
Thank you, Lou and Tim. I'm so happy to be back. Oh, spoiler just, alert. Now you, you just gave away who the other guest was. Oh, sorry. Thank because... you, Lou and <laughs> Chevy Chase. Well, look, Doesn't... of course, no top 10 or, well, most. Well, some top 10s wouldn't be complete Wait, what? without Tim Foster from Celebrations Magazine. And listen, he, he, Tim Foster is like the George Costanza of architecture, so it's doubly fitting that he be here. Tim, welcome back. Lou, you, uh, you, uh, you know I love you, but George Costanza? The George Costanza of architecture. Actually, actually, people, some people at work have called me that. I don't know He's quite not, why. I'm an architect. Anyway... Well, yeah, but that's not why they called me that. And uh, congratulations, by the way. I think you had a first. Not only did you totally change the rules for what I'm about, because you ruined everything I had. You got food in, uh-huh. and you got a Marvel name drop in there, which I don't know if you realized you did, and you did. I, wait, I got a Marvel name drop there? You, you said as we marvel at the thing, you dropped Marvel into the conversation. Right so, out of the gate. All right. So wait a minute. How about this? I'm gonna, yes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna double down on that because we're talking <laughs> oh, about the top ten. And it might sound a bit banal to talk about buildings, but here it comes. Yes. Like Captain America and Steve Rogers, and how yes. the merchant in Aladdin so eloquently put it: like so many things, it's not what's outside, but what's inside that counts. Right? I'm talking about the buildings, Captain America. The, the the street rat, you get it? What I'm saying there? Listen, I get you. you the, this is a great idea. You take credit for it. I'm thinking twelve percent. You get twelve percent credit. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Twelve percent, by the way, appears multiple times in Marvel films. But listen, fifteen is negotiable. Negotiable. It's negotiable. But security breach. Also, in I, Guardians I, of the Galaxy. I, I by watched the way. Avengers last night. So ha ha ha. So. <laughs> well, look. <clears throat> While we're right, talking, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, though. we're not because we're talking about the the buildings of Walt Disney World, and I think when we look at them, there's a lot more than story and structure, but architectural significance and accuracy and impressiveness in design and or function. So I, I wanted to look at what we defined as our top 10 buildings. Like, what are they and why they made our list? And and as always, we didn't talk about these ahead of time, so I'm very curious to hear where we're all going to go in terms of what made our list and why. Uh, now, Daniel, you are once again, <clears throat> excuse me, my guest, and I would love to give you the opportunity, the honor, or the the whatever you want to call it, of going first. I, I accept the challenge and the curse of going first on the show once again. And I just want to say that uh, thank you guys for amazing top tens. And thank you, Lou. This is my sixth Lou appearance. And for those keeping score at home, the first one was top ten wow moments. Top wow. ten stop smell the... Thank you. That 11. <laughs> Top 10 Stop and Smell the Roses, which Tim thought was a show about uh, flowers, which is fine. Lou and I did a DSI Alien Encounter. Top 10 Sky in the Pie Wishes for Walt Disney World. Top 10 Things You Think You Knew About the Contemporary. And now Top 10 Buildings of Walt Disney World. 
And I just want to give Lou credit for the following, that this podcast is the definitive source of information about, in the history of the world, the world's most attended um, and most fascinating vacation resort ever. And for me to be part of more than 1% of these shows is an honor. So I applaud Lou and Tim. Don't say anything else because <laughs> it can you, you can only screw it up from that. That was very nice, Daniel. Thank you very much. And listen, I, I love having you on and I love having you back. And, um, and it's always a lot of fun. So I'm curious to see with your sixth and probably not final appearance, where you want to go with your first top 10 building of Walt Disney World. All right, boys, lads, um, go with me here. Oh, right out of the right gate. Out of the game, Wait, yeah. I was told I couldn't do go with me here. We are going to the Magic Kingdom. We are going to Adventureland. And we are going on the Jungle Cruise. Across from the loading dock on the Jungle Cruise is an unnamed but very special building. It is a little shack that you see across the river. It has a wraparound porch. It has bamboo poles. The roof is made of thatched straw. It is looks like something out of the 1930s that would be in the jungle. Um, there's netting. There's a gun rack. There's a chair and a pit, pith helmet. There's all sorts of weird stuff out there. And you can't really see indoors. But the structure, when I first went on the ride when I was 11 or 12, Lou and I are, are of similar age, although he's uh, older. But he is. Um, when I first went there, I, I, when I saw that, I said, I want to live in there. I don't know what's inside, but it's the coolest place in the world. I loved the structure. I love the fact that it was not explained. It's not necessarily part of the story, but I made it part of the Jungle Cruise story. I thought that this is the place where perhaps um, the person who created the entire Jungle Cruise lived. Something bad might have happened to him. Maybe he's still out there. Maybe he's battling the elements and the animals. There's a keep out sign. Um, it's almost like uh, the, the shack itself is almost like a ghost host warning that some bad stuff could happen to you. But if you make it back, there's going to be tea and crumpets in the shack. And I am now going to email Tim and Lou something. And this goes back to this is pretty hardcore. I have a little place on an obscure island um, in the Bahamas called Eleuthera. And I love this structure so much that I built a <laughs> clubhouse, a bar, just like it on my property. And I'm now, <laughs> during the show, right now, I am going to email Tim and Lou, and they can react in real time to this. Because I built it. It's not exact. But it's pretty close. And I felt so safe in my imagination, sort of living in this shack, that I actually tried to to recreate it. And I'm sending it right now. So, okay, so so yeah. there's a lot to digest here. <clears throat> First of all... I want tea and crumpets, because I didn't know that was part of the joke. Well, look, I love experience. the fact that you guys all both included food right off the bat. 
<clears throat> this is very interesting because you went to something that was a little bit more obscure than I thought. However, I loved your very articulate reasoning and rationale and description as to why it should fit in, why it belongs on the list. I'm now looking at the photo of your not-so-shacky shack in the Bahamas. However, Daniel, I, I would suggest that in order for us to get the full benefit and flavor of what you're doing there, we should really, you should really fly Tim and I down, and we should do a live top 10 from the Roberts shack in the Bahamas. Wait, I'm looking at, I, I just got the email. <laughs> so, uh, oh, hold so on. Awesome. I have, yes, you guys would love it. You are invited anytime. I'm now going to have a picture also of the inside of the shack. I um, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, promise me this, though. You'll, you bring us down for Christmas and you jingle cruise it up. <laughs> but anyway, the... the I, I think no, that I, sorry, you know. I, I think that it, aside from the fact that that structure and you guys know that structure when you leave the the dock, right? Sure. I don't know. I've never seen this building. I don't know. No, you're an idiot. <laughs> jungle. Where, where's a jungle? Okay. Um, but I, I found it, it. It's one of the few things that's not really ever spoken about by <sighs> your um, by your guide, and it's never really referred to. It's just there. And it's something that you have to seek out. And I, again, when I first saw it as a kid, I was just so into it. And every time I saw it, I was like, wow. I just sort of occupied my mind. I just wanted to know the story behind who lived in there. And I think that's important with structure. If the structure is so provocative, A, that you're crazy and you build a building like it. Or you keep on wondering about what the story could be. What's inside that space? I, you know, we hear about, excuse me, Disney enthusiasts who decorate their rooms, they decorate their office, they decorate themselves, they decorate. I have never seen anybody actually recreate a Walt Disney World, other than Michael Jackson, recreate a structure in their Bahamian backyard. So I, uh, I applaud you. And if you give me permission, I will post that photo in the show notes. Please do and beat it. <clears throat> That was a Michael Jackson. Mess, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. I, right. I so Tim, I um, I challenge you to beat that. Oh, I can't. I'm not even. <laughs> I'm not even gonna try. Jeez. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, I I see. I kind of took a weird. I went a weird way on this top ten. You can't go any weirder than that. So. <laughs> yeah. You. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got you. When you said go with me there, that. That, 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 was, that, was, that was sorry. Yeah. No, I like it. I, um, where I'm going to do, I, mine were more general, I guess you'll see as I go through here. Um, um, I didn't want to bog down with, you know, this. Oh, I, here, I'm going to blow Lou's and Daniel's right out of the water. I didn't want to go down the path of uh, this building in World Showcase was inspired by the 13th century fortress of the thing built by the Mayans and the thing in the Phoenicians and the alphabet. And it's because, of, you know, da, da, da. like history, because you'll all just as you are right now, as I lulled you to sleep. So mine are more general. But the first first place I'm going to go, this might be surprising, because I don't, I don't know if most people, when you think architecture and magnificent buildings at Walt Disney World, go to this place. But I'm going to go to the Epcot Resorts. And of all of them, and they're all beautiful, 
I'm going to the Swan and Dog. Oh, I love you, man. Oh, that a boy. Oh, wow. okay. <clears throat> um, uh, f- for a couple of reasons, I um, first of all, to to pay homage to the great Michael Graves, um, who um, a wonderful, magnificently artistic architect, and did, uh, of course did the architecture for the Swan and Dolphin also did. And I always find this fascinating to tell people did the um, design for Disney's corporate headquarters in Burbank, which, which the coolest part. And this is neat because nobody, this is a building you don't see. This is not out in the parks or anything. Um, but for those who don't know and didn't see it, the, of the many, many fabulous features of that building, uh, perhaps the most striking is the, uh, I, get, I think it's the entrance of the building where there are columns, and there are six of them, and they are six of the seven dwarfs that are actually the columns. And the second floor comprises one column, that being Dopey, the most famous and best and most beloved of all the dwarfs. But um, but that that building is so cool in of itself. If, if you ever get a chance to uh, not visit it, but even just Google it, look at some pictures of it. Uh, there's lots of books. You're going to hear me rustling here probably because I have a million books in front of me. So, um, But there's so many cool things about it from the outside uh, to the interiors, to the offices and so forth. But that leads me to Swan and Dolphin, which Michael Graves also designed. And I, I'm sure we've talked about the Swan and Dolphin a lot in in past shows, um, yes, talking about the statues themselves. 56 feet tall, 60,000 pounds, the swans and the dolphins, the mahi-mahi versions of the dolphins and not those dolphins, which I admit that confused me the first time I was there, but I get it now. So, um, But the thing with the swan and dolphin right now, the reason I bring it up, I was actually just did a story about it in this little magazine we'll talk about later, but um, Michael Graves's, Graves's uh, interior design uh, had his lot to do with the whimsy and the nautical whimsy. I can't think of another word of of the uh, resort. And there was a lot of backstory and a lot of theming that went into it. Now, recently, the Swan and Dolphin went underwent a major renova- renovation. If anyone who's been there in the last year or so knows that they redid the lobby and most of the decorations and all of the guest rooms and so forth. <clears throat> But the one thing I want to point out, if you haven't seen it yet, I saw it for the first time at Christmas when I was down there um, in the Dolphin Lobby. And the Dolphin Lobby had historically been home to this beautiful gargantuan white poinsettia Christmas tree, which was fabulous, rivaled only by the uh, jaw-dropping Christmas trees at, at Wilderness Lodge and Animal Kingdom and so forth. But this year, Christmas, the poinsettia tree was gone. And in its place was this magnificent chandelier. It's not even fair to call it a chandelier. This is a work of art. It was hundreds and hundreds of crystal globes hanging from the ceiling. And I thought that took the place of the Christmas tree. That was the Christmas decoration. But low to my surprise, that is now the centerpiece of the Dolphin Lobby. And if you haven't seen it yet, I strongly urge you to go check it out. The lobby itself got a, uh, a total design makeover as well, but the the uh, the chandelier is amazing. If you look 
under underneath it is the four dolphin fountain. And if you go underneath it and look up, um, it's it's just an incredible sight. It's like a million kaleidoscopes glistening in front of your eyeball. So, um, and uh, again, that's not to take away from all the other architectural details of the Swan and Dolphin, the fountains, as I said, the clamshell fountain that um, that is out front of the Swan. Um, keep getting my buildings mixed up, but it, the whole complex is so uh, beautiful and well designed that it's just it's well worth the visit just to see it. And very different from the yacht club, beach club, boardwalk, seaside theme that the rest of the Epcot resorts have. Um, it's very much a unique structure in itself. And and like I said, it's got a wonderful new addition. I really encourage you to go check it out because I my jaw just dropped when I saw it for the first time. So, excuse me, I'm really happy that you actually not just included this, but more importantly, sorry, that you led off with this um, because I think, sorry, this is, these buildings are significant in, sorry, in Disney for a number of different reasons. And this really goes back to Michael Eisner um, because when he came on back in um, 1984, he very much was and continues to be very enthusiastic and fascinated with architecture and very much was a, a patron of architects and realized the importance of bringing somebody in like a Jersey guy, like Michael Graves, who had actually never designed a hotel before in his life. Um, and Ike Eisner really um, fought very hard for him. And when the buildings were first built – there was a lot of criticism. Obviously, they're mm-hmm. not officially, you know, Disney hotels, but they thought the design was very confusing. It was a bit garish. It was a bit plain. But Eisner, when he dedicated it, was very much supportive of the design and said that he actually felt that they that they erred on the side of the fantastic and the only way to avoid the criticism is to build a bland box, which he didn't want to do. It was all about creating uh, creating impact and, and liberating sort of from the, the general context. And what those buildings did was start a wave of, I don't want to call it an architectural renaissance, but a, a, a beginning of a trend of, you look, look at things like Team Disney. Right, which is an administrative building on property near Disney Springs. It's another example of a functional building that is still stunning yet graceful, and it's a little bit whimsical. Um, this was actually from a Japanese architect, Arata Isozaki, whose first work in the U.S. was the Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A. But like the Swan and Dolphin, it was about setting a theme not being you know mickey mouse or a castle or things like that it's sort of the idea in this building like of time right there's the whole building sort of and if you've ever been inside you'll see there's um there's a tower in the center that's not just ornamental from the outside but inside is a sundial which i I still believe is the world's largest that that functions as a place for cast members to go but also to observe the passage of time. So these 
buildings that may have received criticism or made to seem like office buildings or convention centers actually embrace a lot of what I think we're going to talk about, what, what I actually plan on talking about in terms of architecture, um, in terms of entertainment, in terms of story, in terms of um, engineering marvels. Uh, I really sort of, when I approach this, I didn't look at this topic as these are just my favorite buildings because I like them, because I like the way they look. I thought about some of the inspiration behind the creation of these structures, right? So it's that architecture of reassurance, that that feeling that we have inside Disney that we feel we, we know where we are and we feel safe and we feel secure. It's the architecture of storytelling, how it sets a stage and how it sets a place. More importantly, the architecture of emotion, because I think maybe story could even be secondary or tertiary to the emotion that these places should should elicit from us, right? Because we love this place because of how it makes us feel, right? And I think some of these buildings are meant to be uh, inspiring, right? So like the Chinese theater, it, it gives us that romanticized sense of history and the past or Morocco, the way it's designed for us to wander and explore and sort of slow down and stop and smell the roses. And that is a very wordy, long-winded way to get to mm-hmm. where I'm going first. Don't say, mm-hmm. I'm setting, I'm no, setting, I, I, I'm setting I the background. No, I was hanging for... on to every word. And thanks for knocking <laughs> off two of my next items. I didn't, but I'm sort of explaining. Yes, you did. I didn't but, mean to. But Wait, I have a question for you before you start. Sure. I, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, Michael Gray, I, I, should, I meant to find this out. I know when he, when Michael Eisner came in, and in retrospect, I mean, there's, your opinions of what he did and, and did right and wrong and all that kind of stuff. But I know when he came in, one of the things that he did focus on was the architecture. And there was a term for what his approach was, and it's escaped me. I'm desperately trying to look it up. Do you know what I'm talking about? A, a term for what? A flag. Like what his attitude towards uh, in terms of architecture within Disney and what he was trying to do. I think it was called uh, capitalism. Is that? <laughs> no, no. I mean, uh, no, I mean, I think, idea, I think it really was it's, architecture, like like fu- like form over function. Well, I think I think the idea, and maybe this is, I think it was what they termed as entertainment architecture. Yes. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. the term I was trying to think of, and I couldn't find. But yeah, and I, I just wanted to say because for whatever we think of Michael Eisner and things he did or. You know, whatever. The, the, him bringing that to Disney at that time uh, I, is one of his uh, stamps of good things that he did do. And Swan and Dolphin is just one example of it. Um, uh, but, but I did want to give credit where credit was due. And I was really trying to figure out what that term was. And thank you. For yeah. And look, I, I um, and if you've listened to uh, I, I did a show, um, gosh, I think it was episode like four. 26 I think was the the we talked about the Disney decade in our in our wayback machine you know look I applaud Michael Eisner for a lot of things and you know the 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 shift in attention to detail in terms of the the design architecture was very much rooted in him look he even when building the swan and dolphin he was he came in or was brought in 
five, six, seven times to review plans and to review progress um, because he wanted to make sure it was going to align with what he wanted for his vision of the park. So he wasn't just looking at the design, but he was looking at textures and paint colors and light mm-hmm. fixtures because it goes back to the Eisnerism that everything speaks. And yep. you could look, and I think he even said, you know, it costs the same amount of money to build a 1,400-room, you know, ugly building as it does to build something that can speak and be beautiful and tell a story. And I think the Swan and Dolphin are perfect examples of that. And and even today with you know, like a lot of changes that have happened over the years there, but it's still I love it, Darren. I'm still waiting for you to You didn't even look you didn't even I, talk actually about, you did take me down to eat there. I, I well I, I apologize. I won't even get into what? the new lobby bar fins or or blue zoom no, or anything like that. I'm not no, gonna okay. talk about that. Because I, I actually did. did. That's <clears throat> fine. So you you got it in there, but so as 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 long as I was in my introduction, I, I will try and limit my my first one on my list. Although it, you're going to accuse me of cheating, but it's not. It it may be a stretch, but it's not a cheat, because the first one on my list in terms of buildings that are significant and impressive and beautiful and and tick all the boxes of what I just talked about in terms of the architecture of emotion and storytelling and reassurance and the past is Main Street USA. And for all intents and purposes, they are technically... (laughs) Daniel's out. (laughs) Well, but look, I knew there was going to be overlap. I want this to be a conversation, not a... a, This is a conversation, not a presentation, right? But technically, Main Street USA is is just two buildings, right? And if you've listened, shameless plug, to my audio tours of Main Street USA you'll know that this remarkable architecture and the story that's being told spans a century of growth and development. And I talk about how while this Victorian-era town was similar to Disneyland, excuse me, it has a much more New England influence and it's an idealistic view of what Main Street should be, but it's very, it's a warm inviting place. It's very free from contradictions. Um, unlike Disneyland, <clears throat> this is, which is obviously the, you know, <clears throat> sorry, uh, inspired sort of a, by small town Marceline. This is a little bit more affluent uh, Eastern seaboard culture, a little bit more opulent, a little bit more symmetrical in some of the designs. The storefronts seem to be a little bit more connected, which I think leads to that idea of this, this uh, very close town sort of growing over time. And every part of it, to, to the Eisnerism, speaks from the color choices being very bright and welcoming and, and based on ones that were used in the early 20th century America to the textures and the patterns makes Main Street sentimental and evocative and colorful and and builds on that ideal. And everything does speak from the props to the lattice work to, you know, how they used forced perspective in it. And I think it is a very inspiring, evocative, emotional place. And for me, Main Street USA remains one of my favorite places anywhere in Walt Disney World. And I think it's because specifically of the design of the buildings that 
you know, sort of wrap their arms around us as we walk through. Mm. Indeed. (laughs) This is tough when there's three because I don't know who's jumping in. Actually, Lou, I want to ask you a follow-up question. Get him. Do you you miss... (laughs) What do you mean, get him? (laughs) Stop it. Do you do you Sorry. miss the, the the shops on Main Street being segmented? You just want me to talk about the House of Magic so I can tell a story about my dad and cry. Oh, again, <laughs> dude! All apologies. No, that, you... that was so rude. I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry. I know, but do you? Because you you seem to be happy that there's just two structures. But I sort of miss when it was when the the different shops were segmented. So there is the nostalgic part of me that missed sort of going in and out of each of the stores and and the House of Magic and not that I ever went into the tobacconist shop, but the card shop and the candle shop being their own individual spaces and places and stories. However, from a design, from a logistics, from a guest experience point of view, not only did it make sense to connect them all for a variety of reasons, but from a, listen, let, let's call it what it is, from a, a a retail marketing standpoint, when they connected the interiors of all of those shops and changed the way they uh, approached the entrances where now you didn't have to sort of bounce in and out and check out 10 different times. You went into the Emporium and you stayed inside and there was visual weenies that brought you from one section to the next to the next. Profits in in merchandise went up exponentially. Like that's not a secret. So much so that other companies like Nordstrom's and Macy's and other big box retailers were coming to Disney to figure out what they were doing in terms of design in order to make that happen. And it does. It makes sense and it works. You'll walk in by Casey's Corner. Next thing you know, you've got a basket full of stuff and you're, en- you're ending out over by the car barn. <laughs> yes, you have, you have like five hot dogs, four dresses, <laughs> three. No, you're right, though. It's brilliant. Brilliant. All right, is it my turn? I it love, is. It is your turn. Right. And I'm prepared. I'm buckled in and I'm prepared to go with you here. We are going to Nepal, my friends. What? We are go- sorry. <laughs> First, sorry. We are going to the Himalayan village of Sirka Zong. Welcome oh. to the Himalayas. <laughs> exactly. We are going to the prelude to Expedition Everest, which in my opinion in recent times um, is the most impressive structure in terms of theming, in terms of planning, in terms of sentiment, in terms of historical accuracy, and in terms of labors of love in the history, not only of Walt Disney World, but of any theme park ever. Now, yes. This even, is even King to Khan, Great Adventure. You're not giving a nod to that. Even that. Even wow. The King to- wow. Mighty. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, this Sorry. is. It's okay. I'm used to the. I'm the third wheel. I'm used to it. I'm just going to shut up. I'm sorry. No, oh, I love you, Timmy. doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, um, this is Joe Rohde and Stefan Helwig, who 
went away for a while. And when they got out, <laughs> I'm just kidding. They went away to Nepal and they bought everything you see there and they researched everything you see there. There is, let's see, there is, there are four or five buildings. There's something called Norbu and Bob's Himalayan Escape booking office. There's Tashi's General Store and Bar. There's a tea warehouse that's been turned into a Yeti museum. There are homes. There's a monastery. It apparently that someone who had lived there saw what they had done, who was an on-site designer and started crying, like literally just crying because of the accuracy that she felt like she was home. Um, in the, the pagoda, the monastery, there are 1000 carvings of the Yeti. And I mean, all these things were done there, brought over to central Florida and then recreated. Um, Everything there has meaning, especially the museum itself. It is, I mean, of any prelude to any ride, and this, I know this is not um, a top 10 about the queue, um, but as a structure, and there are a variety of them, but all, if you look at them all as sort of one entity, it is the most compelling village that, and they're, apparently they chose so many accurate different because there are many different religious sects that they they chose all these different renderings of what the yeti means to different people and you can see it because some look like fairy tales and some look like baby stories some look ferocious um some look like cautionary tales um and all these different influences and then the the weathered um prayer flags i mean holy cow this is this is one of the most impressive set building pieces in the history of the world it's as a structure and that you get the soul of the place. And that's sort of, it's an amazing irony at Disney for this. The ride is a ride. You know, what's going to happen. Um, the Yeti's not going to dance. You're going to have fun. You're going to get back and continue on your way. But the feeling in the queue in, in these buildings, in this village, the feeling is that this stuff mattered to people that th this is not, this transcends imagineering. This is, there's a factual element, there's an archeological element to this that grants credence to the whole ride. This to me is one of the most impressive put togethers anywhere. And now it's not a, a four walls and a roof and a door structure because it's open aired as are structures that are in Nepal and in the Himalaya or beneath the Himalayas. But this makes you feel, even though you know your outcome on the ride, which will be fun and safe, that this makes you feel as if something perhaps mystical or magical might happen. And that is all because of the structure, this, these buildings and the stuff inside. So I agree with you a thousand percent for a wide variety of reasons, and I won't go into an exorbitant amount of detail. I, I, you know, I actually don't think I've ever done a DSI, Disney Scene Inves Investigation of Expedition Everest. More importantly, this this village of Sirkazong, which do you know what Sirkazong means? Anyone? It means uh, stop Google. Betty White. No, it means what? Fortress of the Chasm. It's Fortress. Do you know where you can find that out, Lou? <laughs> 
Yeah, WW Radio, because I just said it. Do you so, know where else you can find it, Lou? In the archives of WW uh, Celebrations Magazine. <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll tell you later. Oh, boy. Anyway. Thank you. <clears throat> Joe 532, I found it. So when I was speaking, he was Googling the village of Circus. <laughs> Uh-huh. What I wanted to say, <laughs> you're killing me, Smalls. <laughs> you're killing me tonight. Um, <clears throat> the reason why I like this entry, and I and I appreciate <clears throat> your comments and sentiments about the importance of it and and the details, is not just because of the artifacts they brought over and the building materials that they use and the construction methods that they used to make sure this building was going to be accurate because they knew that not at some point someone from that area was going to come and say, this looks exactly like a place that I visited. It looks exactly like a place that I grew up. But I love how, in my eyes, this building, this village, doesn't necessarily begin in the, the village of Surkazong, but it, it it begins as you start on your trek through Anandapur to the base of the mountain, and it starts. It really uh, is is leading up to. It's almost sort of the um, a preview of the story that you're going to get once you enter that first building in Sirkazong. So um, I absolutely agree. This this belongs on the list, and I promise that I will do a, a, a much deeper dive into the building into the details that are in thank you thanks lou <laughs> by the way you... oh wait it's my is it my wait a second i'm sorry i have one last i'm not done <laughs> all right um yeah. do you know that all sherpas are named sherpa no yes their last name is sherpa yeah for real what's your name yeah. bill sherpa Joe Sherpa. Exactly. <laughs> but you better be good at climbing, Mr. Sherpa. Little Timmy Sherpa. All right, Timmy Sherpa. Go ahead. No, no. Look, all right. First off, I got enough nicknames right now. I don't need that one. So Little Timmy Sherpa is not going away anytime yeah, soon. But just, go ahead. Just, 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 just stop. <clears throat> I will act. I will applaud. Dan- Unlike Lou, who ripped you unmercifully. I will applaud Daniel's last one that was fantastic and i will say even though i i you all know i I, i've actually been on expedition everest surprise yeah i've been on it once once but um no i I agree it's it's theming in attractions like pretty much any new attraction from the architecture and everything is phenomenal i i really wish i i might just go on expedition everest and I'm sure there's a chicken exit right before you get on, but just just to experience the pre-show, the buildings, because that's an attraction in itself. Like Flight of Passage, I think that you need to go through the full queue of Expedition Everest at least once. That's, uh, you know, and we're kind of straying off topic. That's one of the uh, Fast Pass, we should, well, it's not actually a list thing, but the merits of the Fast Pass line versus the standby line. And it's the trade-off of the time you save versus the a lot of times you miss that full experience. Peter Pan, Haunted Mansion. But that's a show for another day. Today we're talking about architecture. So <laughs> let's see. This is a literally – this is a go with me here on a, on a whole different level. Oh my this, God. Is not a, this is not a go with me here in, in location. It's not a go in with me here in what weirdness is Littleton and Foster going to talk about. Now, this is 
go with me here as we travel through time. Because I am taking us back to Mickey's Toontown family. Oh. Mmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, long, uh, long gone now, and we can't see it uh, in Florida anyway. But um, Mickey's Toontown Fair was very interesting architecturally, in that it was a, one the one place in the in Disney uh, where you could see this sort of architecture, which very much inspired by the animated movies that in turn inspired land itself. Um, which, uh, you know, the, the purpose of which was to bring to life the world of animation into a world that we could walk through and, and touch and feel and experience. And uh, it, was, it was done through the use of what they call, I'm gonna, oh, I hope I get this right, squash and stretch architecture. In which case, uh, meaning that instead of just square rigid shapes and rectangular windows and perfectly level door frames here things are as the name implies they're stretched they're squashed they're squished they're curved part of the idea of one to convey the whimsicalness of the animation of the films but also to kind of give the illusion that everything was in motion like everything was kind of moving just like in a cartoon um uh, so it was fun to go uh, through and see all the various buildings, whether it's Mickey's house or Minnie's house or Donald's boat or what have you, um, and to see how quirky everything was, and not just on the outside, but on the inside, even down to the furniture and the bedding and the and the and Minnie Mouse's kitchen. And I, I'm sure me a lot of people out there just like me have oh. 10, 12, 15, 16 pictures of your young child standing at Minnie's refrigerator, tracing their height as they grew, and could they reach the first shelf, then the second shelf, then the third shelf with the cheese and all that. But um, I was interested in, in doing the show, and believe it or not, I actually did, I did do homework for this, Lou. You might be surprised. I did a little I am. But <laughs> I know, I know. Me too. So I don't, I don't want to do homework, but um, um, now, I, was, I was reading about how they developed this and, and came to, you know, like all the little nuances that went in. Um, I get to name drop another one of my favorite Disney people of all time, Mary Blair, and that she didn't have anything to do with the design of Mickey's Toontown Fair per se, but the art, the people who were involved in designing it were inspired by her, not her designs necessarily, but her idea of that the, the designs and the buildings and windows and doors and everything you see didn't have to be just the straight-laced ones we all know about. This There's a place you could be free with shape and color and form and everything else. So that, that did serve as an inspiration for leading them down the path of creating the architecture of two-town fair. Um, another thing I came across, which I found really interesting, was that uh, – Having almost been an architect in high school until I realized I wanted to be an architect because I liked drawing the building. So I switched to art and, and the rest is history. But um, the architectures involved and the engineers involved, traditionally you would have your, you know, your blueprint plan with all your dimensions and drawings and so forth. And you'd bring that to the site and the people building the buildings would understand what that meant and they would 
proceed accordingly as they built the structure. But because this was so offbeat, since this was so unlike anything he had done before and so unusual, they couldn't bring a 2D plan to the construction site and say, have at it, gentlemen. They're like, what? what is this? I don't even know what this is. They actually had to make actual 3D models, tiny ones, and uh, plexiglass places, cases to bring them in. And that's what the construction team and the engineers had to refer to when they were building this because there was no precedence for building a roof that was curved and crooked and looked like it was falling off. Um, so that that was pretty interesting. Um, I, I also, I'll dare, I, dare I say not the least, not the last example of many architectural engineering innovations or different ways of doing that Disney has come up with over the years. But as we know, Toontown Fair is no longer with us giving way to new fantasy, which I have a feeling is going to pop up later in this conversation. But um, before we got to that, I just wanted to give a nod out to the, the whimsy and the fun and the color and the just cartooning. That was Two Town Fair. Well, I appreciate that um, interesting entry, which oh my God. No, no, <clears throat> I, I like it because, look, you know, Toontown Fair, as it was, really was almost a happy accident. Uh, we know yeah. how... You know, this really began from what was supposed to be a six, eight, 12 month temporary land known as Mickey's Birthday Land back in June 1988 when they were celebrating Mickey Mouse's birthday. And eventually it became Mickey's Starland, Mickey's Toontown. Um, if, if you would like, and admittedly, I, in my eyes, a very fascinating look at the history of it. You can still get my Mickey's Toontown fan audio CD for just $10, but I digress. Because I think it was interesting how that space went from flat facades and simple circus tents to a land that used that Frank and Ollie squash and stretch, you know, principle of animation and brought it into three dimensions, which, again, I think goes back to some of those uh, principles and that architecture of reassurance and a place that not just adults but kids really felt safe and secure and short people like me felt like it was built like at our scale. So um, it, it's again, it's about why and how that made that place made us feel. <clears throat> exactly. Lou, I know, I know I built, they built the first story windows in main street lower. So the kids could look in. So kids, I just mentioned that because no because you've reason. got, listen, you, you might as well share the knowledge that you have. So it show off when you can. Um, it's not it's not often you do research. So I'm happy. Listen, you just you have. I'm happy today. I did that. Oh, by the way, since <clears throat> you shameless plug once in a while, that that audio CD you mentioned, I heard that's got a really killer cover on it. It like does. Really nice. Artwork. It does. It's I'm by a former saying, architect I've, named, named. I've heard Timmy it on Foster. the street. I'm just I'm just saying. So I am wow. I am not <laughs> going to go with a go with me here. I'm going to go with something that I think is I almost left it off because it's blatantly obvious. But the reason why I put it on my list is possibly not for what you think. Uh, it's not on because it's iconic and an icon. It's not there because of uh, the way it looks. It's here because I think it is one of the shining, literally, examples of true engineering 
masterpieces and creativity, but also in a way that you might not necessarily realize. And the building that I'm talking about is Spaceship Earth. <gasps> ah. I mean, this oh. is, we're all in this together. It's okay. This is, again, this is, <laughs> look, you, you know about it being a geodesic dome and the platforms and the dual spheres I've talked about on the show. I think it's a wonder of Walt Disney World. We've done a deep, you know, DSI dive with all of the numbers and the panels and the triangles and the height and all of that. And Pentacus dodecahedron. Right. But yes! Wow. Yes! Wow. <laughs> Good job on the Bing. Take that, my math teacher. Good job on on Bing. But while I think that this is appropriately an icon of Epcot because of how innovative it was in its design, construction, and function, it also embraces what Epcot was supposed to mean and what I think it still does. And Epcot was... The theme of Epcot wasn't necessarily just about the future, but it was about uh, uh, wasn't just about the technology of the future, but it was about a future of hope, right? And we think about that in terms of oh, well, you know, the hope for the future in terms of you know technological marvels and nations coming together, and and, and I think Spaceship Earth fits into that as well. And you might not realize, and I want you to actually go. Next time, and I almost this is going to sound like a Tim Foster go with me here until what I'm going to say is going to be validated by somebody who hopefully you represent. The next time you look at Spaceship Earth and you look at those gigantic um, angled arms that are sunk 180 or so feet into the ground, they're there for support and they're there for the structure, but they really are meant to make you feel that those are arms kind of reaching outward towards you from the globe almost in, in terms of an, an embrace. And if you don't believe me, an Imagineer by the name of John Hench, you may have heard the name, said eh. specifically, and I quote, the columns of Spaceship Earth are constructed hmm. to reach out like beckoning arms. It's designed to say, you're okay, you're going to be okay. So those, those columns that, are, that almost look just very uh, mechanical and functional are meant to be inspiring. They're meant to be somewhat optimistic and comforting, which are, are some of the things I talked about before in terms of that architecture of uh, assurance, uh, reassurance, and architecture of emotion. So while it is an engineering masterpiece in terms of the design and the way it's created and the functionality of it, I think what it really does, and I think part of the reason why we, we don't necessarily recognize it is the icon of Epcot Center is because of what it's meant to represent. It's not a, a cold, static building. It is sort of meant, like I said, with Main Street USA, to sort of wrap its arms around you and welcome you in, not just to the park, but into the future that it represents. Well, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. You so you're saying John Hench is wrong? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's um. Where can they contact you? It's Timmy Foster. It's what is it? Yeah, it's T T Foster at Celebrate. Now that that's that is such a wonderful. I never, I never thought about it that way. But darn you, I know because I know when you walk, you're talking about when you're walking up the, in through the entrance to the front. Correct. Right. 
Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I always had a, a vague, warm, fuzzy feeling when I did. Now I know why. But I, I'm going to no, start singing so, in the. Is, I'm going to start singing so, in the arms of an angel, just to sort of. You no, know. I, no, for real, that is really cool. And I, and I now when you say it, uh, I, I totally see it now. I never thought of it that. See, this is a cool thing when you can go. Thanks to you. Thanks to you, Lou Manchel, and you, Daniel, because I'm just in space here. But thanks to you guys. This this show and like Eddie's show, we're gonna see things. The listeners are gonna see things in a totally different way. I never saw Spaceship Earth like that. I'm gonna see it that way the next time I go, and I'm gonna go, holy cow! And I'm gonna look across the Jungle Cruise thing, even though I'm scared to death, and I can barely. That's just because you want Daniel to take you to the Bahamas. So, yeah, I can't. I just spoke to my uh, engineer and architect, and we're going to build a little <laughs> magic shop behind the, the Jungle Cruise bar in Luther. Can you build a pentankus dodecahedron? <laughs> no, well, let's, I don't have enough acreage, but maybe a very miniature one. Listen, it can be my turn, guys. Is it? It is. Please go. Okay. Gentlemen. Yes. No. Yes. No. I'm bringing you back to the 1930s. I am bringing you back to California. I am bringing you to the Tower Hotel. I wanted now, you to start singing going back to Cali, 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 but <laughs> go ahead. No. Take no. me to the ta- Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. I will. Now, the building itself, I'm not going to go into all the architectural detail. Um I will say that it is Spanish colonial revival. And the reason that's important is because it has that sort of reddish color. And I'm going to start with the architecture and get then get to the fun stuff before Timmy, you've seen before little Timmy Sherpa falls asleep. Sorry, Timmy. Wow. Wait. Sorry. But it is visible from Epcot. So the back of it resembles the exact color it blends into the skyline of the Morocco Pavilion. And if you think about those colors, they are identical, my friends, of the tower in Morocco and the tower hotel. I, (laughs) anyway, I'm saying, I'm at, literally, I'm not, I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. But that's how they did it because you can see the back of the hotel. So they wanted to blend in so it doesn't look out of place from the purview of Epcot. So it sort of looks like, it looks like part of the scene. Next, I'm going to tell you about the wonderfully creepy and beautiful way that you wind your way up to the hotel that you pass things that would have been at an actual hotel in the 1930s in glamorous, beautiful Hollywood. The path is cracked and curved. It goes over all these overgrown gardens and signs, and there's signs actually pointing to stables, um, a bowling green, tennis courts, swimming pools, a pavilion, and then you hear, in my opinion, one of the best sound effects, and I know this is perhaps from a different show, but I love, of any musical effect in Walt Disney World, I love the echo effect 
of the 30s jazz that plays because it doesn't sound live. It sounds like you're hearing something from the past. That echo effect to me makes the ride. At least it, it, it builds the ride's tension so perfectly. Also the fact that this is the only ride that has sort of an exoskeleton. Like we can see parts of the ride feature when people drop down out external of the structure. And yet still, we are for some reason convinced that this is an old hotel. And I find that brilliant. The, oh, here's a quiz for, for Lou. Well, that one is. All right, and Tim. Thank you. True or false that the chess game in the lobby of the Tower of Terror is a stalemate. False. So <clears throat> my understanding is that there's a Mahjong game in the tower, which That's why had professional Mahjong players come in. And at one point they said, stop playing. And they made them get up and walk away. So it's not at a stalemate, but it is sort of at a midpoint because it would be as oh, if right. everybody just disappeared. I met Mahjong and you passed the quiz twice because you did. <laughs> um, all right. Let me ask this. <laughs> <laughs> Well done, Lou. Oh, my God. Lou. You know, I had lunch with Lou. Um, and You did? Can you tell me how that is? Because I'm still... It's so good. But there was a waiter who, there was a waiter who knew his stuff about, about Disney World. We were in Animal Kingdom. I can't reveal where or what we had. Yak and Yeti. Yaki, we were at Yak and Yeti. I remember. Yak and Yeti. We had a bunch of sake and some Mongolian beef or something. It was great. And the waiter didn't know who Lou was... But I said, there's no way you can stump this man. And I think he went back 11 or 12 times. <laughs> and it got to the point where before he would start speaking, they would say, uh, parrot outside of, it was just, he was, it was, it was, he had the force. It was amazing. Do you remember that, Lou? That's I do. And I was really nervous that I was going to get part. one wrong and lose all credibility, but. Oh my God. You were, you were, you were on, you were on fire. It was amazing. And the guy. I went back later um, to go to the, the, the ladies' room with my little daughter, and the guy was, like, just shaking his head. He didn't want to say anything. He was still, like, didn't know where this man, Mr. Mangello, came from. Anyway, back to the, to the beautiful uh, building. I think that it's – I think that the Tower Hotel – I think it's the second tallest building in all the world next to um, – Expedition Everest, I think. Um, and I know that they had many I ideas. I think the to... Empire State Building's a little taller. I think he means the Disney World, Tim. Oh. Yeah. I said Expedition I, Everest. I'm a jerk. Oh. I'm sorry. I know that. I know that. <laughs> um, but I had read that they were considering making, and Lou could correct me on this, and if, if wait, nice waiter from Yak and Yeti is listening, well, you can't correct me on this because Lou beat you. Moving on. Um, that they were considering basing the Tower of Terror ride or whatever that ride was going to be on a Stephen King novel. Lou. Okay. So I actually talk about this on a Wayback Machine or a DSi, and I will only, without giving too much away, at one point, <clears throat> excuse me, they did look to base it on a Stephen King novel, but only after they ended up abandoning the idea 
of basing it on a Mel Brooks. This this was actually going to be based on, uh, and, and I don't want to again. I don't want to give too much away because I want you to go back and listen to the show. I'll link to it in the show notes. But the story was actually going to be one that was going to be crafted by Mel Brooks um, before that idea was, fortunately or unfortunately, abandoned. They that they did go over to 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 talk to Stephen King, and that actually went pretty far um, forward as well before they decided to go with their own independent. Uh, idea and, and basing it on the Tower uh, Twilight Zone. Do you know what novel it was of Stephen King's? Apparently, we have to do homework to find. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to end my. Uh, I want to know. I want to know now. I'm not doing the homework. I want to cheat. <laughs> Tell me what is it? Um, I I love the Tower Hotel. I think I almost wish that there was like a tour of the lobby and I would love a tour of the grounds. I think it's just, you know, I, you don't see, you see enough, but there's, uh, there's a term in literature called a metonymy where you see a little bit and then you can imagine a lot. And every little thing you see leading up to the tower hotel and every little thing you see in the tower hotel lobby, my imagination goes wild and I, can just imagine what it would be like to stay there, despite the apparently many risks of staying there. So, Tim, so, I'm going to quickly answer your question. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. It was not a single Stephen King book. It was going to oh. be an amalgam. <clears throat> Sorry, of a number of his stories. Um, there was also the Mel Brooks idea. Um, it was also supposed to be a real working hotel that would have had it, that the story would have actually begun as you landed at Orlando International Airport <clears throat> and were brought over in a car that had the windows blacked out so the story would begin there. They also thought about doing like a ghost tour with Vincent Price being at the, um, the host or narrator again before all those ideas were abandoned. But I will just say quickly that this almost made my list, <clears throat> excuse me, due in part to... The inspiration from the mission in in Riverside and the Chateau Marmont in in Hollywood, and the there, there is actually a Hollywood Tower Hotel in California, but not a lot of design came from that. But I, I loved, I love present tense. <clears throat> the if you look carefully as you go through the exterior queue and you enter the building, and actually more so if you go to the exit, which is basically the hotel's entrance. And look really carefully at the archway ornamentation and the gardens and the twisted columns and the minarets. They're beautiful, and they really do give you that sense that you have traveled back in time, which is really part of the reason why I love the theming and the story here, more so than I did the California version pre-Guardians of the Galaxy. Although I will say, just as a quick aside... The Tokyo, Tokyo Disney Sea Tower of Terror, which is ident- identical mechanically to the to the California Adventure one, is a complete redesign of the story because Twilight Zone just doesn't exist there. But the architectural design out there would make if we were doing an all park list, the Tokyo Tower of Terror would be very, if not highest, definitely top three. 
architectural. Dude, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I have to interrupt because I'm turning 50 in a couple of years. I am going to Tokyo Sea. I was there before once for two brief, like eight hours with my best friend. We went to Tokyo Sea, the Tower of Terror there with the, the backstory of the explorer and the little doll. Uh, Nefriti, I forget the name, was one of the most extraordinary yep. rides I've been on in my life. And just so you know, Daniel, in case you didn't listen to last week's episode, we are doing a WW Radio Adventures by Disney to Japan next year with an add-on in Tokyo. So we can talk offline if you'd like to, you know, if you'd like to come. Yep. Just saying. Yes, sir. So, um, <laughs> well, evidently, I'm not invited. So. <laughs> so. <laughs> Tim, you and I are going together. Come on, man. Yeah, sure. whatever. Tim, I, I believe you are. Uh, I believe you are next. Now nah, you know what I'm out because you, you're just not inviting me anywhere. I'm gonna get. Uh, hmm. I, I feel we're zeroing down onto our top. These are really like top 15s, right? When we do three people. Again, 10 is more of guidelines. It's more of a suggestion. So where should I go? I I got two. These are like wildly specific because I'm winding down because I always try and get the heroes out of the way so you don't steal them from me. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to I'm going to. I'm going to go. You said you said something in your last soliloquy there, Lou, about. Me not being valid. I'll have to rewind the tape and listen to what you said. It's very hurtful. But that's it. I, I didn't uh, mean anything to be hurtful, but go ahead. Yeah, you, you, but you did, and it's okay. But um, so uh, while we're in Epcot, Lou, Spaceship Earth, uh, I, I realized when I was trying to figure out which ones to pick and what to go, I realized, I mean, you could pick every, every structure in Walt Disney World, including the resort. But certainly in Epcot, I thought about wanting to do something there and I didn't know where to begin. We we talked about Spaceship Earth and and Lou, you brought a whole new perspective to that that I we hadn't even talked about or considered before, which is great. But every future world building has its own architectural story and you can talk about it. Every pavilion in World Showcase has its own story versus both um, mostly historical uh, uh you know, artifacts and whatnot and everything else. So we, we couldn't possibly talk about all of them. I'm kind of surprised we've only talked about one so far. But I'm going to narrow very specifically one World Showcase building. And I'm going to lead into it by, uh, I don't know what's the term we use for, lo- oh, that's right, cheating. I'm going to cheat on this one and talk yeah. about an architectural imaginarying trick that we kind of referred to a little or the whole notion of forced perspective, um, which we talked about. I'm sure everybody listening to this show knows exactly what forced perspective is. We talked about it several times. I know, Blue, you've talked about it numerous times, and we've written about it, and everybody knows. But for the one or two of you that don't know, um, forced perspective, very quickly, talk about Main Street USA, big, great example whereby architectural elements that's why we tied into this show get smaller and smaller as you go higher and higher up the buildings in much of disney especially on main street for example to make them appear taller because we know what a window should be like when it's 30 feet above our head 
when we see one that's small in our brain tricks us into thinking it's got to be a little higher because we know how big it is. So blah, blah, blah. So that trick of the eye is used quite a lot in Disney, not just on Main Street, but even in things like the Rocky Mountains in Canada where the trees get smaller and smaller as they go up the – you get higher and higher up the mountain to make the, the Rocky Mountains appear higher than they are. Um, but there's – these are all tricks to make structures appear taller than they are. But in World Showcase, there's kind of a unique situation where there is a building where they had to do the reverse and make a building appear smaller than it actually is. And that's the American Adventure Building, which I'm going to just focus on that one, even though we could weave wonderful tales of all of the other 10 pavilions and the structures that are found within. And maybe you guys would be kind enough to even include one in your list. I don't know what's on your list, and you may be ready to talk about one, but... There's so many things about the American Adventure Building, which is very cool. And oddly enough, to us in that live in America, it's the most, uh, I don't want to say normal-looking building, but most familiar-looking building. Let's put it that way to us. So it's kind of an odd one to pick out in terms of unique architecture and so forth, because these are things we're used to. Me being in Philadelphia, I'm used to seeing you know, these historical Independence Hall-style buildings all the time. So. But what, there are a few things about the American Venture that I'm going to bring up. And again, these are very, very specific, so I'm, I'm, I'm digging in deep. So um, One is the, uh, the bit about forced perspective um, being used in reverse at the American Venture building. Because in, inside, I believe, it's a five-story building. But back in the day, when this building was common, they didn't build buildings more than two or three stories tall so if they actually made a five-story building it wouldn't have been accurate historically so they needed to somehow make it appear like a three-story building which if you look at it from the exterior it looks like a three-story building and they did so by using forced perspective but kind of backwards so in other words instead of making the upper story windows look smaller to make them appear farther away they would do the reverse so those windows might be larger than they may be, but they, it, it, proportionally it all fits so it looks to be a three-story exterior from the outside, in keeping with the time frame that the building was supposed to be built, um, which I thought is kind of neat. Um, the other thing I find fascinating with that building, this is more of an artistic thing, sorry, not an architectural thing, but uh, is the use of color in the American Adventure building. And I can hear you all. I can hear Lou. I can hear Lou moaning. I can hear Daniel groaning right now. No, I'm like, listening. Like, what color are you talking about? There's red clay you bricks made, and there's made, white clay. That's all there is. Tim, you What's made us think about going into the architectural stuff, but I love it. I, well, okay. Great. Well, they, I, take, go follow me on this ride. So there is an interesting use of color on uh, the American Adventure Building, which I'm, I'm going to throw into the architectural bucket so we can talk about it in here. And it's actually the use of white in the trim on the American Venture Building. And to, as you look at it from the outside, not only does it appear to be three stories, but it appears to be uniformly painted in a nice, ordinary shade of white, uh, all the trim and all the windows and so forth. But that's not actually the case because depending on how the sun hits it, depending on the angles and so forth, depending on what it's up against as far as other materials and bricks and stuff, 
any color, white in particular, can take on a different state. So knowing that, they, um, you, you probably couldn't even tell if you looked at it, but if you looked at the different levels and the different trim on the top versus on the first floor, the second story, and so forth, um, the, the shades of white are subtly different so that they blend in with the sunlight, the ambient lighting, uh, the brickwork next to it and so forth, such that to when you see all three of them, they look to be the same. If they were painted the same and you saw them, they would actually, oddly enough, look differently. One might look darker than the other and so forth. So, um, yeah, that's more of an artistic color theory thing, but I always was kind of fascinated when I read about that. Because um, we, I think we've talked about color before as a top ten. Did we? Because we should. But... Uh, White being a color? That's not a color. But uh, in this case, it is. And it's to me, it's such it's, – it's not only because it's uh, just neat that there's three different shades or four or five, however many there are different shades of white. But there's that much attention that's paid to the details in everything you see at Disney. In this case, we're talking about architecture. And, Daniel, you talked about the architect, the uh, – historical artifact nature of architecture and what great lengths they go to make everything authentic to the time period, even the length of going across the globe to find artifacts that, oh, yeah, yeah. that fit and not make you know not make this up in some prop shop. These are real things. I'm talking down to the color of white. Really? That's how far that but that's how detailed that they will get to make sure what you see is looks authentic and real and what it should look like, what it looked like back in the period, and blends in seamlessly and looks like there was no thought put into it when in reality the thought put into that would dazzle, dare I say, boggle them up. And again, I know you could say you'd go to every Pavilion World showcase and have a similar story about every structure in there and throw in the historical significance of each one, but uh, I know we've done three-hour shows before, and Lou, you did your 24-hour thing, but I don't think we really want to do 24 hours on World Showcase, which we could <clears throat> if we wanted. But we- <clears throat> well, you actually, you know what? You, you, you may want- have said it half-jokingly, but I think we could do a show, a, a top tennis show, about the use of color and tips and uh, uh, tricks and oh, techniques. Oh, I would love to. If that we did. They- I, thought, I feel like we did, but if we didn't, can I, Lou, can I vote that be our next top ten? Uh, we'll see. You know, I'll talk to Daniel and see if you if you actually make it to the next top ten or not based on your performance. Oh. <laughs> I kid because I love Timmy Foster. You know that. But no, look, I, hey, I would love to have that. Are you kicking him out or me out? Which I'm, one are you kicking out? I'm kicking him out, but I'm just – don't worry about it. But I'm – But look, you know, certainly you, you come to it too from a, an, an artist's perspective, even though deep down we know you're an architect. You really are an artist. Yeah. So we can talk about – Art vandalic. Right, because there's a lot of very, and I'm not going to spoil it, a lot of very deliberate, well-thought-out decisions that are made in terms of the use of color. We've talked about some of these things, you know, on Main Street and here in American Adventure and and even just, the. I think I might have even mentioned sort of the color palette that's used to convey a sense of place for Main Street USA versus the Disneyland version. That being said, um, in the interest of relative brevity for the show, I'm, I, I don't know how many more you guys have on your list. I have a few, 
and some honorable mentions. But what I'm going to do is uh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to just I'm going to include one more, and then at the end I'll wrap up just with a couple of things that I think bear. I just have one more. If, if I don't know where we are, I, I have I have like two one minute shout outs. All right, you each, all right I'll you, have one more, and then I'll make up one real quick. All right, so I'll, I'll go very quickly with this one. Um, this should, if you know me. Uh, you. This should not come as a surprise because I think I find a way to incorporate this into almost every show. And now, based on what I just announced um, last week in terms of our next sort of big group trip in 2019, you know my love of Japan, the country, the pavilion, the people, the cuisine, the history, the tradition, everything, and... We did, on show 32, which literally is like 12 years ago, we did a very detailed DSI, Disney Scene Investigation of Japan. But in terms of architecture, in terms of the buildings, in terms of of thematic design, without a doubt, I had to include Japan in here. Uh, Because this, you know, it's... While it's multiple buildings, some are connected, but it really is sort of divided into three distinct areas. There's sort of the east with the the pagoda, that five-story Gojunoto pagoda, which is inspired by a real shrine in Nara. There are, like everything in Japan, everything has significance. Everything has story. So the five tiers represent the five elements from which Buddhists believe all things in the universe are produced. Um at the top of the pagoda is this beautiful sorin, which is a, it's a spire with wind chimes and a water flame. And the building opposite is based on the Shinsenden, sort of the um, the ceremonial hall at the Imperial Palace in Kyoto, where we're going on the ABD, by the way. But I love also the building, first of all, Katsura Grill, which is inspired by that, um, uh, which is one of my favorite places. Anyone in Walt Disney World, you know is one of my favorite. But if you look at the back of the pavilion, that fortress um, is massive. It is monstrously, it, like, it's big, not just in height, but in width, and you don't necessarily realize in depth because of what was supposed to be there, but this was modeled after um, uh, one in Himeji City called the Sh- Shira, I had to write this down, Shirasagi, it's modeled after a real fortress in Japan. <laughs> Come on, give it a shot. I can't. I, Shira Sagigi, Gigi, or what? It's basically the white egret or the white heron castle. But those curved stone walls and those white plaster structures and that beautiful, vibrant blue tile roof is actually a design and a style that dates back to the mid 1300s. And if you go back to the episode, you'll hear about the significance of the castle in feudal times and how these sort of dominated the Japanese countryside and why they were built and the inhabitants of the castle towns and, and, and why it was built the way it was. It really is fascinating from a true historical perspective, but it's also fascinating from a Walt Disney World perspective because as big as it is, like everything on the promenade, it doesn't necessarily dominate the... Um, the view from any one point, right? Going to your point about why the American Adventure was was built the way it was, but there's also a, a massive, massive show building 
behind the castle, behind the Mitsukoshi department store that is not used because that was supposed to ho- house an attraction like Carousel of Progress called Meet, Meet the World, which had songs by the Sherman Brothers and, and whatnot, which unfortunately was never built. Um, at one point, there was going to be a Mount Fuji roller coaster here. We sort of get into it all back then, but... Oh. This is one of my favorite pavilions for so many reasons, not the very least of which is the, the, the beautiful architecture, how well and how detailed it was recreated here, like, like everything else that we see in World Showcase. But it, it maybe made my list for um, not just objective reasons, but subjective ones as well. I think we need DSIs notwithstanding and whatever you've done before, but we... We need to do a top 10 things we love about Japan. We didn't do that, did we? I don't think so, but dude, I'm, I'm down. Because we, lo- we both, and Daniel, I know you're on board with this, but we've talked so many times that that's, like, that's our favorite spot, both of us, for whatever you know, there's reason. On there. there's, there's, that's, that would be great. As a fan of the show, I would love to see I think we need to. Do, I think better yet, I think we need to do it in Japan, like at in the Japan Pavilion. At the pavilion. October second. <laughs> All right, Lou. I'm All right, be, I know you're not going to be there, but I'm just <laughs> so just do the show without me. That's fine. I, we- uh, I I will. I will. Daniel, I'm sorry, I stepped on your toes. Please. Uh, Daniel, please go ahead. <laughs> I'm anyway, such a jerk was- tonight. I'm sorry. No, you're great tonight. You did a lot of research, and I can tell. That yeah, I got great. I got two books open on the floor. That's, that's a lot. No, you're. I was spellbound by your uh, dis- discourse about the color white. That was amazing. Really That's was. art that was school beautiful. talking. Don't tell I know, me art I, school's not worth it. No, but I, I maybe want to go see it with my own eyes again. and Go check, go check it. Stuff. Yeah, go cl- climb, climb up to the third st- – bring a sheet of paper with you. Compare it to Can the frame the floor. And then climb up to the third floor and then just hold it climb up. Climb up they like a sherpa? People do it all the time. They don't mind. You don't need climb a, up like, you like don't Timmy Sherpa. Yeah, no, you don't need that. You can just scale on <laughs> up there. It's fine. All right, thank you. I my last, I'm sorry. I'm my sorry. Two, Go. That's okay. Go. My two throwouts are uh, Memento Mori in Frontierland mm. because it is the only structure that has a backstory involving a ghost that you can actually step into because Memento Memento Mori is apparently the home of Madame Leota and sells the. I know. I love and her. I love her too. I know you guys. Well, doesn't Lou have a crush on Little yeah. Leota? Un- 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 just, just, unnaturally, yeah. Just move on. <laughs> uh, on. Nothing to Best see here, please. Got it. But yeah. it is a Victorian structure. It is. It looks like it could be. Same period as Haunted Mansion, Hudson Valley, 1900s. You knew you were going to do that, though. I know. I told you. Um, but I love the fact that you can tell your little kid that this is where, or your wife or yourself, that this is where um, Madame Leota lived. And she hasn't been here in a while, but she might be coming back. And in my opinion, that it, for Haunted Mansion uh, aficionados and purists that they have, I think they have the best, I think they have the best, well, they have all Haunted Mansion stuff. You can get a tie that looks like the wallpaper from the Haunted Mansion. 
you can get so many cool Haunted Mansion things, including you can get the the plateware uh, from the banquet scene. And it's an eerie place. And, you know, maybe she's still there. That's my first shout out. I love it because it's Victorian. It matches the period just before the Haunted Mansion was created. So there's actually like a historical line of reference that she could have lived there before she somehow found her way next door to the Haunted Mansion. Um, the second one is, this is a weird one, but I love the Twinings Tea House um, World Showcase England in Great Britain because the roof is tilted and weird, but it looks like the real deal. There's something about the angle of the roof at the Twinings Tea House that makes me want to go in there and sort of be one with it. And those are my last two shout outs. I, uh, I love the Tea Caddy building. And if you go back and listen to it, I don't know the episode. I did a, a walkthrough of Epcot, uh, of the United Kingdom in Epcot, with somebody from the United Kingdom talking about the authenticity of the buildings and, and the inspiration where they come from. And all those buildings in that cluster represent different time periods. Uh, again, I don't want to sort of spoil it for you, but um, I'm trying to remember. I don't, I don't remember what number it was, but we do a walkthrough and talk very specifically about that building um, not just the exterior, but the interior as well, and some of the, the neat details that are in there. So I'm happy that you added that to your list. Thank you. Well done, Daniel. Timmy Foster. I'm up. Uh, I find you know this is funny because um, as we, as when I'm done with mine, I know Lou, you're going to rattle off <laughs> two, three at the most. I'm sure. Um, and I don't know if you're pulling a saving the best for last or if you, like me, throw out all the good ideas lest someone steal them, Daniel. Hey. Um, no. I, I, I didn't mean to say that out loud, Lou. Um, <laughs> I, 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 can hear, I can hear the internet screaming right now in protest, in desperation. Like we're talking about Disney architecture. The only castle that's come up in the whole conversation is the one in Japan. Okay. What are we doing, guys? I, I think I, I think I said at the outlet that I, I very deliberately kept the castle off the. I, I felt the castle no, was too again, obvious, and again, we've talked about oh, it ad nauseum in terms but, of origin, illusion, story, etc. That's guys, why, that's didn't why I left it off. Castle is off limits, or no? I forget. Here's the thing. Again, Lou makes a rule at the beginning of the show. No, no it, was a pro, it was just for myself. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just left it off. No, I left it off just personally. It was just my own choice. No, I, I, I'm not going to Cinderella Castle, by the way, just so Lou, you, you can go. Phew. But um, now I, I actually for the same reason, I, 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 I have castle notes, but I was kind of laying off them for. Kind of the same reason. One, I, I, I was sure when he was going to talk about them. Um, but also, yes, we, we've talked about the castle. You've talked about the castle so many times. How much more can we say? But I'm going to throw a little shout out to a lesser castle that exists in the Magic Kingdom. And it doesn't belong to Cinderella, but it belongs to Rapunzel. 
And oh. I'm I'm throwing this one in there because this is a um, I think a very interest. It's interesting on a lot of levels. Um, just seeing it is it's beautiful. I mean, it it's uh, during the day, during the night. That whole area of Fantasyland is t- totally transformed from what it was, which was basically a stroller parking lot. And now it's a I want to say destination. I mean, you, you can't go in the tower, obviously, but it's it's a place to go. It's actually a place of significance now. It's not just an oh by the way. It's a place way. of respite. It's a place to it's to a place rest. Of respite. It's a place to charge your phones. It's a place to relax and listen to the waterfall as it meanders down the mountainside, cascading past the glorious structure that is beautiful. But but the. the neat thing about it and an arc from an architectural standpoint is uh i'm sure there's many many other examples of this we could find uh nay it could be a story and a show unto itself but this was an architectural uh structure born out of necessity just as much as it was born out of uh the need for theming and entertainment and you know that sort of thing. Um, back when uh, I'm sure everybody knows this story, but back when they expanded the Peter Pan Interactive Queue to what it is now, it necessitated removing everyone's favorite restrooms in all of the Magic Kingdom, the ones over at Peter Pan, and uh, they needed to put <laughs> new ones in somewhere. And what better place than that kind of empty area over there where they park strollers right now? But this is Disney. Do we just build restrooms and call it a day? No. Where are you? Universal? This is Disney. When we build stuff, we build stuff. And so the the idea of having to build restrooms in uh, across the way in another part, let's just stop. Let's make this a whole thing. And so this became an area themed around Rapunzel's Tower. Uh, you not besides the tower itself, which is a deceptively magnificent structure. Because obviously compared to Cinderella's castle, even compared to Prince Eric's castle, or even the Beast's castle, even though it's so far away, this is kind of an innocuous tower just sitting there. But if you go and look at it, it really is beautiful. And it's just the centerpiece of a whole mini land within Fantasyland, um, home to... Uh, Maximus's footprints in the ground, the half-eaten apples, Pascal the lizard. I really hope I'm getting these names right because I haven't seen Tangled in quite a long time. But and um, and quite possibly one of the best restrooms in all of fantasy or in all of the Magic Kingdom. Um, oh, by the way, since you had to make them, but at night uh, it comes alive with the lanterns hanging. Uh, across the entire courtyard, just strings of lanterns lighting everywhere. The, the, the uh, towers lit up. Um, we did do an. Uh, we actually did a cover story on Rapunzel's Tower way back when, and I was uh, kind of researching. I was trying to find out how tall it was, and wouldn't you know, that's actually a pretty difficult piece of information to find, or at least it was at the time. But what I did find out was that the story, uh, the tower, in the original story. Way, 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 way back, was 20 L's tall. Now, you can collectively ask me 
Little Timmy Foster. What? Is an L. Go ahead. Somebody say. Uh, it's a it's, well, I'll tell you what it is. It's a unit of measurement. I'm reading this out of my article. It very wildly throughout Europe. Now, what I can tell you is it was approximately 44 inches. Well, what does that make? That, that makes the tower in the original story about 73 feet tall. The tower Ooh. in the film, about 70 feet tall. And as best as you can guess with some trigonometry and some shadows and some careful measurement, that's how tall the tower is in fantasy. So it's um, it's it's it you know it's a it's a one of those things that so there's no attraction or anything there. So most people probably pass by, look at it, and go, "That's pretty cool." But there's other than to look and admire, there's no real reason to stop there. But just like so many other things at Disney, there's such such a story behind it from why it was built in the first place to its connection to the movie and the story that inspired the movie. Um, far beyond what you might think if you just wandered past and looked at it. There's so much, if you peel back those layers of the onion, Lou, there's so much to find in that area and beyond the tower, which itself, I'll say it's strikingly beautiful, especially at night. I, I will just stand and watch it just because it's, it's kind of perfect. I have mixed emotions about the tower. I think oh, it's beautiful. Oh. Although I do miss, I do miss my Skyway chalet that that oh, stood no, in no, that spot. Lane Rapunzel for the sky, And listen, I, I have contemplated for years doing a top <laughs> ten restrooms in Walt Disney World. I know you have, and <laughs> so, that's one of them. Uh, Guys, we'll can to... I not? I don't want to do that one. But... <laughs> No, I, but you know what? Spoiler, art already. Well, I shouldn't say that. Don't I know. Spoil Luke, it. Don't spoil it because we might actually do it. All right, all right. That that's we'll, a really we'll difficult. Let, we'll let the people do, and there's research I'm not willing to do. Right, that we'll, might be pushing the bear. There are. We'll let the people decide if they if that's what <laughs> they right, want to hear. People speak. If you want to stop, let. Let us know in the show notes below or call the – I'm doing your – You don't even know how it works. You don't even know how it works. No, I don't. I've never watched, listened to this show. All right. I'm going to wrap up my list and – and okay, just sit back, relax just for a minute. I will tell you that something that I did have on my list that I, that I left off and didn't get to and um, had contemplated back and forth was the Tree of Life. And you might say to yourself, well, that's technically not really a building, but it kind of is because there is a show building at the base of it. And that's really one of the reasons why I had planned on including it was because of not just the the engineering, but the innovation in terms of using an oil rig as sort of a model in order to build that. And then everything that it took to solve all of the engineering um difficulties the fact that it was to a certain degree that final design to a certain degree was based on a bonsai tree that imagineers found at one of the very early uh, uh flower and garden festivals over in epcot but having all of those primary and secondary and tertiary you know and all the different end branches it, it very much is a marvel and dyk did you know that before they had the idea to put a show in the base, there was actually supposed to be a restaurant down there called Roots Restaurant. No. True. I would not lie to you. Really? Not about, at least not about that. 
Yeah. Others that I think could well, very sorry, much, Lou. It was. I'm sorry. It was going to be beneath the ground. No, it was going to be sort of in the base. So right now, where the the theater is, was going to be a restaurant. Right. So in sort of the roots of the tree, but not not oh, underground uh, because Florida. Um, others that very high water table, no basements. Uh, a couple that that I I think bear mentioning would be the Swiss Family Treehouse which I consider a building, a structure. I think it's just incredibly unique. Certainly the contemporary in terms of the methodology that was used, very unique methodology in terms of um, uh, that sort of, um, you know, building a sort of like a chest of drawers type of thing. Um, I almost had Harambe, that, that, little, that little village of Harambe in terms of, respect for the architecture and the story from and how they created this fictional place i think space mountain again from an engineering perspective having those structural beams on the outside of the building was a very um uh, innovative thing to do again especially thinking this is going back to the early uh 70s it's something that that happens much more common now but it it solved the problem of having the smooth ceiling inside for projections and also made for a very unique um, design element as well. So I think the Space Mountain for what it was in terms of um, not just the, the ride system itself, but the building. Uh, did did you know that mm. the, the ride to build Space Mountain cost more than it did to build all of Disneyland? Space Mountain cost about 18, oh. 19 million, and, and Disneyland cost 17 million to build total. Finally, because I have to just throw a couple last ones in here, um, I think Universe of Energy, again, for the technical innovations. You know, this originally was supposed to have, it was supposed to be a solar energy pavilion, and they were going to sort of have this parabolic solar collector which would have been more decorative than functional. But as the plans evolve and it becomes universe of energy and they want to sort of bring, again, forward-thinking real-world real world technology in there, um, the Solar Power Corporation, which was actually a subsidiary of Exxon, built what at the time was the largest private solar installation in the world. And there's 2,156 panels that for a long time... Uh, powered that attraction. And, and during the, I guess it was late 80s, early 90s, um, you might not know this, the um, the system, the, the solar panel system, actually stopped working um, because the operating costs were so very high. And it took about a year or two, um, I think maybe when they did the refurb in 96, that they brought the array back up again and they replaced all the panels and all the wiring but you know this idea of sort of riding on sunshine i think necessitates this to almost be mentioned um and just from a personal preference i just love the design of the haunted mansion because i just think it's cool so <laughs> it's creepy it's just cool and creepy and i dig it but i want to ask you can oh i'm sorry no no please i, I wanted to I wanted to put a punctuation on this. Please. 
before you you did your welcoming, and Daniel should have a parting shot as well. Oh no, we're all going to have yes. I'm, I certainly will give you all parting. Yeah, I know. Shots. I know you're about to launch into your your Thank the you, most Jimmy. important part of the show. <laughs> so predictable. No, no, no. I mean seriously, the, the viewers and getting involved, or the, the viewers, the listeners, the viewers. That would be that would be. Oh, wait a second. Camera. Someone is there? Is there a camera? Yeah, in my we're room? on video right now. Did you? Did you? Know oh you no, know? I think I dressed. Wow. No, I'm. I'm uh, I just wanted to add, not to point out like two or three or four extra ones, but just the idea as we talked about it, and it hit home again to me as we were doing this, but we talk about this so often, but the architecture of everything. I don't think there is any building in the entirety of Walt Disney World, whether you're talking about the parks, the attractions, the resorts, the shops, Disney Springs, uh, anything that there there is no structure that doesn't have an architectural significant story to it, whether it's uh, a functional thing or more often than not a theming aspect to it, whether it's uh, you know building a new a new structure like the contemporary meant to evoke a time period, but nothing specific. Or if it's a reference to something very specific, like Danny mentioned with Expedition Everest, you could say that with Cali River Rapids and uh, many other attractions that so heavily rely on uh, historical and uh, architectural accuracy to bring its places to life. And, I, I just want to say we could do every single building in Walt Disney World and have the sure. same discussion yeah. about each one of them. And I think that's one of the most – that's a wonderful thing. When this topic came up and we talked about it, it was uh, – on one hand, it was easy to find things to talk about because there's so many examples. But on the other hand, it was hard to – well, which what five do I want to talk about? Because there are so many. And we left so many out. And Lou, and I knew you are going to ask your wonderful audience to add in their thoughts. But, but – it was it was kind of hard to nail down five to talk about while leaving so many others out that are so worthy. Of this. I absolutely agree. Um, you could make an argument for almost every building as to why it should be on the list. Yeah. Totally, Daniel. What do you what do you have to say? <laughs> well, gosh, um, what a great show. The problem is that. Any show that I'm on that I don't listen to it, then I'm going to miss the show for a week because I don't like the sound of my own voice. Nobody well, does. Listen nobody listens. I mean, no, no, I nobody likes the sound. What I meant is nobody likes no, the sound of their own voice. I'm sorry is what I was trying to say. Nobody likes the No, you know, because I – that is my biggest compliment to this show and to Lou and to Tim is that it will bug me that – there'll be a new show and I will not listen to it only because of um, voice vanity. That said, I would say that I thought this was an amazing show about these buildings and there are so, so many left out, um, especially in World Showcase. I don't think we did terrific justice to um, uh, the Hollywood Studios. I don't – Disney Studios – the Disney, yeah, Disney Studios, Hollywood Studios, Disney Studios. Disney's Hollywood. Disney. Disney's called MGM, like. Uh, yeah, no. My family. And also, I mean, things like the Grand Floridian, the hotels themselves. Yes. Like, I had um, guys. I had uh, 
gosh, I mean, I definitely had contemporary. I had um, so many of the hotels on my list, but it's hard to whittle it down. But I just want to thank Lou um, for masterminding this podcast and all he does and to remind people that this is the definitive podcast or source of information about the most popular resort in the history of the world. And now for my daughter, Miranda, I'm going to do a very brief ghost toast. Are you ready? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, well, I, I can't. We're doing impressions. I'm, I'm loving this. All right. No windows and no doors. <laughs> That's it. I, That's it. I, <laughs> that was it. That's all I got. No, Thanks. that was. I can't. I I've can't. I've lost complete control. Go ahead, Tim. What? Go ahead. <laughs> Live in the in a way. I don't. I don't know exact words, but. Uh... Are you doing you know, You're going to do an impression of somebody, doing... and you don't know what this person says. <laughs> no, you do it all the time. And I, because I, I, my daughter, as long as we're all talking about our wonderful daughters, she always chides me when I quote something and I miss a word and I get it wrong. So I, I, I don't do bits around her anymore. She always corrects me. Before but I, was that supposed to be that, just, wait, was that just before you say, was that just supposed to be your Edna mode? Yeah, but I don't, give me, give me the words and I'll. I I'll never look the, back, darling. It distracts from the now. Is that what that was supposed to be? I never right. look back, darling. It only distracts from the now. That sounded like um, not at mode. It's yeah, no, yeah. No. The only so, thing I, say, hey, I, um, say I, am... w, I just want to leave. If we say impressions and you talk Lou Mangello. Hey, lady! I had to throw it out. Because that's... Oh, that was good. Everyone gets that at me now for some reason. And it's, Lou, it's your fault. I didn't even say it. You said it. Well, I get I'm, it. Every, I'm happy that... Uh, I didn't say it. Didn't I'm happy that it. my bad Jerry Lewis stuck. Um, no, probably, that was I'm probably happy that it stuck more than my bad 20,000 leagues under the sea you know, impression. But anyway, listen. The question... Better than I'll tell you that. The question that I have... For our friend, my friend, you, if you're still listening, thank you. I want to know from you what building you think is the most important or impressive, symbolic, detailed, or, or even just meaningful for you. What I'd love for you to do is one, a couple of different things You can to let me know. I'd love to keep this conversation going in our group over on Facebook, if you go to www.radio.com slash community, that will take you to our Box People group over on Facebook. Would love the conversation to continue there. You can also tweet me at Lou Mangello. Better yet, call the voicemail 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. And tell us. Let me hear it. Let me hear it in your voice which building you think should be on the list, which is important to you and why. Um, unlike this podcast, you only have three minutes for a voicemail, so make it count. Uh, Daniel, I'm calling I sincerely right now. appreciate uh, not just you being here tonight, but I appreciate you and uh, not just the friendship that you extend to me, but really you've done so much, um, as so many people have, for the Make-A-Wish Foundation through our Dream Team project. So I am grateful 
to you and for you. Timmy Foster, I love you, brother. It's been a long time we've been doing this, and uh, yeah. you never fail to you never fail to Show not up. disappoint. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to tell people to go to celebrationspress.com, but I have a feeling you're going to tell them why. Can I tell them? Of course. Daniel, what what's the most definitive source of Disney information in print form? You got a minute and a half, so oh, go. Wait a second. That is that's Timmy Foster's Celebrations magazine. Right, you are, sir. And where can you find? No, all right. I sound like a real jerk now. <laughs> <laughs> no, now, you got to tell them where. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do it. Now, please come, please come visit us. No, no, listen, listen. Tim, what? you listen. You didn't. Yeah. You look. What? I'm, you have continued for so many years and so many issues to deliver that kind of content that you know the. So don't say it like the the, the publisher. Say it like somebody who just loves the magazine and why people should go and, and read it. This is the most beautiful magazine. Oh my gosh! I'll forget it. Listen. We are Disney fans who are hungry for content. We love to get it in, obviously, audio form, video form. There's still nothing like holding a high-quality printed publication that is made with love by people who love this place, and that's exactly what Celebrations Magazine is, and that is why you shouldn't just pick up a single issue, but you should subscribe mm -hmm. at celebrationspress.com. Mm -hmm. Boom. That was beautiful. Lou, do you know how many issues we've done? I kind of alluded this in our last podcast. But Fifty some odd issues. Fifty nine is hitting mailboxes now. In fact, I, I hope most everybody has it by now. If you don't, you can contact our customer service department at <laughs> celebrationpress.com. But um, uh, issue number sixty is around the corner. After that, Lou, our tenth anniversary issue is right around the corner which i can't believe and you said you you know you i think you said 12 years ago or how long you've been doing ww radio uh it's 13 years 13 years and and we're coming on 10 and i still can't believe it and i i, I think i mentioned this in our last show but we're we're getting excited i got one one more issue to get out which will be fabulous by the way but then um you know, we're, t we're trying to think of special things we can do with our 10th anniversary issue. Um, I'm really thinking – I would love ideas if anyone hasn't, but wh what I'm really thinking of doing um, – uh, not I didn't want to pat us on the back because it's – Lou, I, I appreciate your kind words and stuff. We do, this, we do this for the love of Disney right. and Disney World. So I, what I really want to do is um, right. take that issue, take that opportunity. We're going to take a look at Disney uh, right out of the gate. We're going to look at – how how it's changed. We've changed. We've all changed. Everybody's changed. Disney's changed in the ten years since we've started, and we thought it'd be fun to take a look back where it was when we started, where we are now, and all the wonderful stuff that's happened in between. So that's coming up. So that's really exciting, and I'm sure we're gonna have a bunch of promotions and stuff to go along with it. And I I don't know if I actually had it in my hand well, last time we did the podcast, but our newest. Book. Speaking of top ten lists, 112 Disney lists. Our newest book, our paperback book, our first one, is here. It's now. It exists. It is now. So you can go to celebrationspress.com and order it. We're still going to maintain our pre-sale order price that we had. We're going to keep that going for a while because we just we love all you guys. We want you to get this book for the price that it was always meant to be. So, um, 
but if you come on over, it's it's uh, we have that available. The magazines there, all kinds of fun stuff coming up. So uh, yeah, and and beyond that, there's so much more. And and I can't wait to come back and do this again. It's been too long since we've done this. <laughs> Well, you blew the minute and a half about nine minutes ago, but that's okay because I still love and appreciate what you do, and I want I want as many people as possible to uh, to be able to enjoy what you do, guys. Thank you again so very much for this. Thank you, Lou. Fascinating thank you, Tim. I love you guys. <laughs> I love and appreciate you guys. It's always interesting. <laughs> oh man! Until next year, I love you guys. for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history, or I want to see how well you pay attention to the details, not just in what you see, but sometimes in what you hear. If you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Of course, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week I took you over, we're back to Disney's Hollywood Studios, and still one of my favorite classic attractions, Muppet Vision 3D. And your question was simply to tell me, who hits Fozzie in the face with the banana cream pie in Muppet Vision 3D? I want to thank all of you who entered, got this one correct, including the one very creative entry. Not only did you use the online form, but you also sent me an email with a video of you doing your Fozzie impression. You didn't get any extra credit or points or entries into the contest, but you do get a laurel and hearty handshake. So last week's winner is going to get my 102 ways to save money for not Walt Disney World book, all seven of my virtual walking audio tours of Magic Kingdom's history, details, and story. All of those, by the way, are still on sale for $10 over at the WW Radio shop or on Amazon or iTunes. You're also going to get a WW Radio Magic Band cover, a bunch of stickers. I'm going to throw in a WW Radio pop socket and stand for your phone. And I'm going to randomly select a shirt for you from the WW Radio logo collection or one of the thousands of unique Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, retro 80s, whatever shirts that you can find over at the WW Radio shirt store by going to www.radio.com slash, you guessed it, shirts. So last week's winner, randomly selected, is Debbie Myrick. So Debbie, you use the online form. I have your, your shirt size and your shipping information. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and did win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. We're going to go from one classic attraction to a classic, classic attraction, and still one of my favorites, Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. And the question, listen, you've been there so many times, you've hopefully sat and paid attention and not fallen asleep and didn't just go for the air conditioning. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'll even tell you it's from the first scene, to tell me, how long does it take Sarah 
to do the wash in the first scene of Carousel of Progress. The robins are back. It's a sure sign of spring. It's just before the turn of the century, and Sarah has her new wash day marvel. So tell me, how many hours does it take her to do the wash? Imagine. All you need to do to enter is go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, use the online entry form there. Again, you're going to play for the prize package that includes the books, the audio tours, the cover, the stickers, the pop socket. And why not? I'm going to throw in another shirt from the shirt collection. So good luck and have fun. And when I say shirt collection, I don't mean my shirt collection. I will, like, I will order you a shirt from the WW Radio collection. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I understand how valuable your time is, and I'm so grateful that you choose to spend and share some of it with me, with us, really. Speaking of us, I want you, you already are, to be one of us and really be part of our community. If you go to www.radio.com community, you can join our Box People group over on Facebook. I'd love to continue the conversation, not just about this show, but any episode or really anything that you want to talk about in the Disney world, whether it's Walt Disney World, Cruise Line, Disneyland, Star Wars, Marvel, Marvel, Avengers, Marvel. I need to go see it for a fourth time, by the way. Again, be part of the show, the community, and really our family by going to www.radio.com slash community. And speaking of this family and community that I love and appreciate so much, I want to thank all of the new and the longtime members of the WW Radio Nation who do so much to really help and support the show. I want to thank some new members like Noemi Fixmer, Michaela Jane Roy, Benjamin J. Bobier, Chris Payne, Herschel Linney, and Christine Tilsley Morrison. I really want to thank each and every one of you, as well as all as well as all of the longtime members of the family. And if you want to find out how you can not only help the show, but you'll also get exclusive rewards every month. I create and send out a new scavenger hunt you can do at home or take with you to the parks. You have access to our private Facebook group, personalized Magic Band covers, ton of different logo gear, including shirts, hats, back packages, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World. We do exclusive live video group calls every month. You also get early access to special events and a few other, let's just say, surprises I am working on. Also, don't forget that a portion of the proceeds of your monthly contribution do go to our Dream Team project that benefits directly the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. To find out more, to become part of our nation family, visit www.radionation.com. If you have a question you want me to answer on the show, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com. If you want to be heard on the air, you can call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. Weigh in on this week's show. Talk about anything that you want or just a hello from the parks. Again, that's 407-900-9391. And of course, in addition to the show, one of my favorite things to do every week, I've been doing it really weekly for over 10 years now, is our WW Radio live video broadcast and live chat every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern over on Facebook at facebook.com slash Radio. Make sure you not only like the page, but turn on notifications. And if you're part of our Box People group, you'll also get notified as well. Again, that's every Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. You can also connect with me elsewhere on social. I am at Lou Mangello on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. And of course, while I love talking with you online and on social, I still believe that nothing beats a handshake and a hug. That's why I continue to do monthly meetups every month in Walt Disney World. I am still working on May's. May is a very tight month for me. I'm hoping to do something 
possibly early evening, May 26th, because that night I'm actually going to be hosting the Saturday Night Shine Party at Chef Art Smith's Homecoming in Disney Springs from 10 p.m. till close. They're going to have a full menu, appetizers, shine on tap cocktails, a lot of Southern hospitality, live music, and more. You can reserve your table by going to www.radio.com slash Saturday Shine. That's just going to take you to the regular Walt Disney World dining reservation page. You can probably also walk in and just come to the bar. I'm really not sure. Just show up anyway. Again, it's Saturday, May 26th for the Saturday Night Shine Party at Art Smith's Homecoming. And obviously stay tuned to the events page as well as the show and social media for our next meet of the month as well. Of course, I also do other meetups and events, not just in Walt Disney World, but on the road as I travel to speak to events and conferences and at schools. And, nice segue, if I can do that for you, for your business or for your school, visit lumangelo.com. And I'd also love to work with you either one-on-one or small groups to help you turn what you love into what you do. So if you have an idea, a business, a brand, a blog, a podcast, I would love to help you sort of turn the corner and take things to the next level. I'd also like to invite you to my Momentum Weekend Workshop in Walt Disney World, October 6th and 7th. That's Saturday and Sunday with an optional mastermind day that Monday or Tuesday after. It's a small event, limited to just 50 people. I'm going to have more details, including speakers, coming soon. But it really is an intense two-day workshop with like-minded people that's going to help you turn what you love into what you do. You can find out more, watch a video, and ask me questions by going to lumangelo.com slash momentum. Thanks, as always, to Mouse Fan Travel, my official and recommended travel provider. Whether you're coming to Momentum or just world or land or cruise or really anywhere on the planet, they can help you with the best possible prices, all available discounts at no cost to you. Visit them over at mousefantravel.com. Check out Celebrations Magazine over at celebrationspress.com. And if you like the show, and I hope that you do, all I ask is that you please help spread the word. It's so important that you invite your friends to become part of this community and family by letting them know about it, by tweeting out a link to this or your favorite episode, or better yet, take a link to any episode that you like, whether it's this one or one from the past, and share it with your friends over on Facebook or over on social And if you could take just 30 seconds, it doesn't even take that long, 30 seconds to rate and review the show over on iTunes, I would be incredibly indebted and grateful. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Caitlin Bronson, who says, I love the show. I've been listening for a few years now. I look forward to listening to each week's episode and some I listen to multiple times. It really gets my week off to a happy start. Lou does a fabulous job each week, creating a high quality, informative and entertaining episode. Additionally, he personally responds to each email, it's true, which just makes me appreciate him that much more. That's why if you email me and I haven't responded yet, I promise I'm getting to it. I can't say enough good things about the podcast, hoping to one day be able to attend a meet of the month and meet Lou in person. Caitlin hopes so as well for our requisite handshake and hug. Tom Nolan from Jersey says, WDW Radio is the best, period, podcast, period, ever, period. I've been a loyal listener for a couple years, and it keeps getting better and better. WDW Radio isn't just the best Walt Disney World podcast. It's the most. It's among the most entertaining, enjoyable, and just plain fun shows to listen to, period. It's all because of host Lou Mangiello. He obviously is a true Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, etc. fan, just like I am, but it's pure magic listening to Lou talk about what's upcoming at the parks, at the movies, and everything that makes the Disney brand the wonder that it is. I encourage everyone to listen and catch up on old shows if you're a new listener. Great advice. It'll make you feel as though 
You're right there at the happiest place on earth. Just as fun for me personally as listening closely to catch one of the many movie or pop culture references Lou will sneak in. I did a couple this time, I think. What's equally entertaining are the intros to every show. Lou throws in a bunch of Disney attraction quotes, movie references, movies, etc. It's a really cool way to kick things off and start the fun. So from one Jersey guy to another, former Jersey guy, many thanks, Lou. You continue to make my long daily commute from New Jersey into Manhattan more enjoyable. Well, Tom, Caitlin, I really appreciate you and everybody who has rated and reviewed the show. If you go to iTunes, just search for WW Radio or go to www.radio.com slash iTunes. It'll give you instructions and take you right there. Finally, most importantly, I am so incredibly thankful and grateful to and for you each and every day. And if there's ever any way that I can help you and repay the favor and the gift that you have given me with your time and your love and your friendship and your attention and the community that you have built, please let me know and I'll do anything that I can. And remember, you don't need a suit of armor or a special costume or any sort of superpowers, not just to be a superhero, but to be special. Remember what Tony Stark said to Peter Parker, if you're nothing without the suit, then you shouldn't have it. It's what's inside. It's who you are and what you do that counts and makes a difference. So go out there, make a difference, be a superhero this week, and I hope that you have your best week ever. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou, my name is Mike, and I'm calling from Louisiana, and I was calling uh, regarding your interview with uh, Dan Cockrell. Dan and I were college uh, friends and rugby friends back at Boston University, so I've known Dan now for almost 30 years. Um, he's one of the greatest guys you'll ever meet, and uh, when we come to Disney about once or twice a year, Dan always takes the time to uh, spend uh, with uh, my daughters, who now know him as Uncle Dan. Um, one of the things I've always noticed about Dan when we walk through the parks with him is Dan goes out of his way to say hello to every single cast member and make sure that they're doing okay. And most of the time, he actually knows them by a first-name basis. And um, I always point that out to my daughters because it's the little things like that that are important in life when you just take time to meet people, talk with people, and just make sure they're having a great day. Uh, just wanted to call today to wish Dan all the best in his new endeavors and uh, that we look forward to seeing him soon. And uh, best of luck and congratulations on everything he's done. Hey, Lou, how's it going? It's Brian Rainey again from Kansas City. I want to call it to know where I am. It's uh, Tuesday, May 8th. I'm at the studios right now. It's really hot, really sunny, but that's, that's okay. That's how I like it. But let's get off um, Rock and Roller Coaster, and my trip's almost over. I have to get on this plane later on tonight, but I'm going to try to squeeze in one more Fast Pass. So I have a Fast Pass to um, Jungle Cruise at 6 o'clock. But first, I'm going to go down to Disney Springs, get some hummingbird cake from Art Smith's, and get some cookies. But then I'll come back to Mr. Kingdom and wrap it up there. But anyway, having a good time. Like I said before, my annual pass is about to expire, so I just wanted to squeeze one more trip in. And hopefully, I'll see you real soon. Hello, Lou Mangello. It's Darlene Maggie from West Seneca, New York, calling in to say that I have single digits nine days until our trip to Disney World for my birthday. You have, oh my goodness, only 46 days left. And you'll be on that cruise to Alaska, and you're going to have so much fun. I can't wait to see all the pictures. I know I won't be on the cruise, but I will be there in spirit with all you guys and with 
Beatrice and Dennis for their wedding. And then I have, oh my goodness, 136 days for our trip back down to the world to see everybody again. I can't wait. I'm so excited. It's going to be so much fun. I love Flower and Garden. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. If I missed you, um, with whenever the show is released, just know that I'm thinking of all of you. Love, hugs, stay positive. Have a wonderful, magical day. Hello, Lou. It's Darlene Nagy from West Seneca, New York again. I accidentally said you had 46 days. You only have 36 days until your cruise. Oh, my goodness. I was trying to give you more time to get ready for it, but it's going to be here before you know it. And you are such a busy guy, and so is Becky, that you guys are just going to be having to, like, fly through all your plans now. Have a magical day. 